Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at Mark. Father, thank you for your kindness to us as a, as a fellowship. Your kindness to us in these past few weeks where you have allowed us by completely by your grace to secure our location here in this building for many years to come and how you've shown us much grace in spite of our ignorance and pride and naivete and in spite of my foolishness as the primary leader of this congregation and in spite of my insecurities and and lack, Lord, you have been so gracious to us as a church. And Lord, one of the great graces you've given us is to send us so many young men and women connected to Fort Benning and our military serving us. And we pray for those soldiers over there in difficult places, um, in dangerous places, in harm's way. We pray especially for Nathan and any other young soldier in this room who may be deploying soon. Thank you for A.J. Bastone's safe return. Lord, we pray for a, a, a quick and peaceful end to the conflict there in Afghanistan. And we pray for our leaders, as Robert did before, that you'd give them great wisdom and grace. And Lord, we know that the United States has a mission, but we know that the Proverbs and Romans reminds us that you just raise up governments to bring about your sovereign will for the nations. And even as these nations don't necessarily understand that they're pawns in your chess game, we are. And God, we, we do pray for uh, an end to the hostilities, but more than that, we pray for open doors to the gospel in these dark places. And we know that all things work together for your glory and the good of your people. So go before Nathan and these soldiers and thank you for their service. We pray, Lord, now as we turn our attention to Mark chapter 3 in these two brief paragraphs that you'd encourage us, that you'd give us humility and wisdom and clarity and focus. And Lord, in particular, on my heart uh, this morning is people that are just feeling kind of banged up and weak and fearful and insecure, like they're barely holding on to you at times. Oh Lord, I know that feeling. And I'm so thankful that your word says that you don't break bruised reeds. You don't snuff out smoldering flames. But you blow breaths of encouragement and life. And you stake yourself and your strength next, next to bruised reeds. And so by the power of your word, Lord, would you... Save people today that don't know you in this room. And would you encourage and edify Christians? Lord, I pray that you'd do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read, and then uh, we're going to go back through and summarize it with four points. And I think that the main point of the two paragraphs that we're going to read today is is it gives us a glimpse of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. What does that look like in this story that we'll read today, these two paragraphs, and in our lives today? Mark chapter 3, verse 7. 
It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Well, this is an incredible scene where Jesus is fresh off of the miracles and the authority that he demonstrates that we see in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2. And it's very easy to read the scriptures and just kind of, well, maybe we've read this before in our Bible reading plan or we're relatively familiar with this. Or maybe this is the first time that you've ever read this text and it seems just kind of like, well, Jesus is attracting crowds and he calls these men to follow him. There's nothing particularly significant about this. But I want us to get into this scene for a moment. Think about this. Jesus is, is, has, has this crowd of people. I mean, what's happening here is it's like a European soccer game, Right? I mean, the crowd is pressing in on Jesus, about ready to break the barricades and, 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 and crush each other. And so much to the point that Jesus is backed up to the shore where he has to prepare a boat for himself just in case they push him into the water. And then amidst all of this chaos and all of this demand for his attention, Jesus ascends to this mountain, and it seems just with utter calmness and clarity, appoints and calls 12 men in particular to himself. Before he even does that, there's these demons that see him. And actually, really the ironic thing in Mark is that even before his disciples clearly understand who he is, the demons clearly know who he is. You know, I mean, they get it right from the get-go. You're the Son of God. Leave us alone. It reminds me of that verse in James chapter 2, verse 19, where it says that even the demons believe and tremble or shudder. The point is, is that it's possible, I think, to believe in the, the cognitive fact and reality of who God is and that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think it's even possible to believe that He came back from the grave and is resurrected and ascended. But it's possible to believe and not truly be trusting in and be saved by and made alive by Jesus. And in the midst of all that clamor, he goes up a mountain and he appoints 12 men to follow himself. And he calls them his disciples and his apostles. And I think there's much for us to learn in what he then tells these disciples to do. The first is, I've got four quick things that I think it means to be, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
Life as a disciple of Jesus means, first of all, to be called by grace. Look at, look at where it says there in verse 13. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to those whom he desired. Now, in the Bible, we see sort of two different types of calls of Jesus. There's, I think you can look at how Jesus calls people to salvation by grace and how he calls people to service by grace. And in this particular instance, I think Jesus is calling these disciples to a particular service as his 12 disciples. And later on, we find that these disciples become apostles who in the early church have this special authority to be Jesus' messenger to the early church. And actually, through these 12 men come the Bible as we know it as the New Testament. And they are the ones that give apostolic authority to the New Testament writings. And so certainly these 12 disciples and these become apostles have a sort of special once and for all in their time only authority that the rest of the followers of Jesus do not have. In other words, we can't claim to be apostles and say that we've come up with the 28th book of the New Testament or something. We, We don't have that authority. Jesus gave these men special authority. But we see here as a pattern throughout the New Testament that Jesus calls people to himself and he calls them to salvation and he calls them to service. And this particular scene serves as a sort of model to teach us how Jesus does that. And he does that solely by grace. Notice that he he doesn't pick out the 12 sharpest guys. This is incredibly encouraging. He doesn't sort of go around looking to recruit. He doesn't send out flyers to the, you know, the local uh, MBA program or he doesn't you know he doesn't send out mailers to the to the wealthy neighborhoods he doesn't recruit he doesn't go to the to the little lunch meetings he he just he calls 12 scrappy people who are all over the map and he calls them to himself not because of anything good in them but solely because of his grace and friends I think we need to confess something that this is hard for us to understand as Americans because are we not addicted to talent aren't we (laughs) I mean, we, are, we even have a show, which I don't watch, and if I say anything about it, surely I will mess it up and I will offend, but I'm sure it's garbage, so there I just offended you. It's called America's Got Talent, right? And I mean, I'm all for people having, you know, good voices, and I'm all for only listening to people that have good voices, but the point is, is that we are addicted to talent, are we not? I mean, we live in a merit-based Society, and I think on some levels that can be good for the way we structure our economy and we want to elect sharp people. I get all that thing. But friends, do you see that when we just sort of grow into this habit of translating that to how God, our creator, views us, we make a fatal error. The good news of Jesus calling these scrappy band of 12 is that he chooses them by grace, not because of anything good in them, but because he desired. That's the accent. That's the phrase there. He called to him those whom he desired. Listen to this scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We went through it a couple years ago when we worked through 1 Corinthians. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. In this particular instance, he's talking about your calling to be a Christian. Consider how Jesus made you a Christian and why Jesus made you a Christian. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, I I realize that many of us, again, I think because we're Americans and we grow up in a culture where we breathe self-sufficiency and where we breathe man-centeredness. I think for some of us, as we press into this truth a little bit, it rubs us the wrong way and offends us because we like to think that we had something to do with not only our selection to service, but our selection to salvation. Friends, one of the most important truths that I think you can wrestle with as a Christian is to realize that you are a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a disciple, if you are today, not because of anything good in you, not because you brought faith to the table, not because you decided anything first, but because Jesus first decided to set his saving love on you. Friends, don't let the God-centeredness of that truth push you away from God. Let it do a couple things. Let it crush pride and create in you confidence. Let it crush pride and let it create in you confidence. Because just work it through logically with me. If you know that we have been chosen, if we've been selected by God to be his followers, not because of anything good in us, but solely because he desired. Friends, do you realize that if we didn't get picked because we can hit home runs, then we don't have to keep hitting home runs in order to stay picked. Do you see how freeing that is? Do you see how freeing that is? And do you see what good news and hope that holds out to people who who are running 180 degrees in the opposite direction of God's grace? It means that his arm is not too short to save. It means that his ear is not dull. It means that he saves to the uttermost, as Hebrews 7.25 says. It means that nobody is beyond God's grace because nobody deserves God's grace. And he sets his love on his people for their good and his glory. Friends, I don't think there is a more glorious truth in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 31 and talks about how this should produce in his confidence. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all. How will he not graciously with him give us all things? Philippians 1.6. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, that he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we are called by grace, and that grace is powerful to save. Secondly, I think to be a disciple of Jesus, as we see in this text, is that we're, we're called to be in community. And I think we all kind of understand that. You know, like, okay, Brad, we're, we're actually, Brad, I don't know if you know this, but we're actually the people that are here in church, and so we get this. So I'm right, back off a little bit. No, but I want you to see some beautiful texture to what is really underneath this truth, that, that we're called to be in community. We're called to be in a community of people that are 
not just all like us that are different from us. Listen to this. Look at, look at verse 7 and 8 again, which we read. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Those regions were primarily, in fact, exclusively Jews. Okay, so he's drawing people from that region. They're Jews. And from Idumea and from beyond the Jordan. And, and so those people from Idumea and beyond the Jordan are people that are mixed. They're Gentiles. There's Jews and Gentiles there, but they're Samaritans. And then there's people from this little third group from Tyre and Sidon. And people that live there were all pagan. They were all Gentiles. And so Jesus is drawing Jews. He's drawing people that are mixed, and he's drawing people that are, that are completely Gentile. And there's this strange sort of mixture of people that are following Jesus. I mean, they're, they're, they're from all different cultures and from different stripes and colors and, and customs. And th- there's something beautiful that when the, when the presence of Jesus and when the truth of his gospel is rightly proclaimed, it begins to draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And one of the particular graces that I pray that God would continue in the life of this church is that we would be a church that is, just looks like a kaleidoscope of racial diversity. So we're not people from just one particular neighborhood or from one particular social economic demographic, and we're not people from one particular race. We're white people and black people and brown people and yellow people and purple people and green people, which I don't think exists. But do you see how beautiful that is? And do you see that the beauty of Jesus' person draws people from every tribe and tongue and nation? And it is a particular grace of God to see that gathered together, worshiping him. Not only does he draw people in community that are different from each other, but he draws people together that find difficulty in loving each other. This is another little nuance I want you to see here in that life as a disciple is to be called into community. He calls, and we made this point a couple weeks ago, he calls Matthew the tax collector, which we read about a couple weeks ago, who in, in the early part of Matthew is also called Levi, He's the tax collector. Remember, he is the Jewish citizen who is selling out to the Roman government and collecting taxes so that the Roman government can continue to keep the Jewish people under its military thumb, right? So he's a turncoat. He's a traitor. He would be like a guy that would be working in, you know, as an undercover operative for Al-Qaeda, you know, setting up funding from the firm that he has to send money to support terrorists. And then he also calls Simon the Zealot, who is the nationalist Jew who has spent his life working to to win Jewish uh, independence again and probably very likely hates Matthew, the sellout tax collector. And of just 12 people, he finds room for the nationalistic zealot and the turncoat tax collector in the same 12. I mean, come on. I mean, think about that, that that God would call people who can't stand each other, man. They can't stand each other to be part of the same 12. What's he saying to us in that? I mean, come on. I know there's some people in this room right now that kind of rub you the wrong way. Come on. Come on. Aren't there? I mean, maybe you even have decided to sit on one side of the sanctuary because you just, ah! 
and be humbled by this beautiful motley crew that Jesus brings together. People who you can't stand, who say inappropriate things, who you know how they're like Monday through Friday and they've, their life doesn't match up with their testimony and this, that, and the other. Well, guess what, friends? None of ours does. I mean, think about that truth. And then another little nuance before we move on to the third point that I want us to see in this community is Jesus' community includes people who probably aren't even Christians. Jesus' community is not yet ideal, just like this church is not yet ideal. And why do I say that? Well, listen to that last verse there that we read that once he names these 12 disciples, verse 19, he says, and one of these 12 that he called was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Friends, that's why we preach the gospel. We work the gospel into every message. That's why all we talk about is Jesus' saving work and all its implications because listen to me, and, I, and I'm not just doing this to be, I'm not just doing this to get your attention or to be, like, speak in hyperbole. But in a crowd this size, there are people in this room who think they're Christians but aren't. And one of the things that God has, I believe, called us to do as a church is to clarify for people in a very watered-down, nominal Christian area where everybody thinks they're Christian because of the way they vote or because of the news channel they watch or because their grandma used to be something-something at this church and they get a bulletin from some church and they just kind of have some casual connection to cultural Christianity that they think they're all right with God. And I think that one of the things that God has called us to do is to clarify for, for a culture that is religious but lost what it means to truly follow Jesus. And, and I find great encouragement, strangely, in the fact that one of the 12 that Jesus called, he knew would fall away and betray him. And that should give us a sort of strange, humble encouragement as a church is that there are people in our midst that probably think they're Christians that aren't. And one of our goals here is to not let any of us be Judases, to preach the gospel, that you would turn and trust in Jesus. Don't be that one. Don't be that one at the end of your time. You've really ultimately trusted in yourself and not Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian, friends? To be a Christian is not to have some life principles that help you do life better or to come to church occasionally or to you know, do this or that. It's not about any particular thing you do, but it's to realize that you are a sinner and that you have rebelled against God and that your only hope is in Christ and his perfect life and his righteousness, that he lived the life that we did not live in our rebellion, and he came as God himself in the flesh. And where we rebelled, he obeyed, and he lived this perfect life and then willingly laid it down as a sacrifice on the cross. So the punishment that should have been mine and yours and all who would turn and trust in Jesus was laid on him. He, he, in our stead, took God's punishment, absorbed it, and completely satisfied it on the cross, and then rose again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences, and now calls everybody to turn and trust in him and what he has done. Friends, at its core, that's what it means to be a Christian. Have you 
done that. In fact, friends, that's one of the reasons why we push church membership so much, not because we want numbers on a roll, but because one of the things we do in our church membership process is to sit down with people and hear how they came to Jesus and whether or not they understand the gospel, what I just said to you. And we don't want you to just sort of be able to coast your way through years of just kind of being on the outskirts of Christian community, tricking yourself into believing that you're right with God when you may not be. And, and, and one of the things that we want to do is we don't want to just serve our own ego by getting people here in numbers and numbers and numbers and just saying, oh, we've got this many people coming to the church. Friends, I would far rather have a small church that is pure and knows the gospel than a large church that, that, that waters down the gospel. And so one of the things that we really encourage you to do is if you consider yourself a Christian, join this community by submitting yourself to the, the life of this congregation and the life of the leaders. And if this isn't the place for you, then go to another Bible-believing church where you can do that because one of the best things that you can do for your soul is to get assurance that your profession actually lines up with your life. And, and of course, no church can be the person that issues salvation. Only God can do that, friends. But do you realize that in this community that God has given us together as Christians together in a local church is part of his means by clarifying and assuring for us what it actually means to be a Christian. Friends, there is no more important thing that we can do as a church than that. And gosh, I know, look, I know that's unpopular. I know people are like, what? I mean, we're Americans, man. Not only do we breathe the air of self-sufficiency, we breathe the air of independence. But the Bible gives us these means. It gives us each other in community to help clarify what it means to be a Christian. Uh, have you trusted in Jesus? Do you have anybody in your life that's close enough to... I mean, are, are you so arrogant that you think that you may not have any blind spots? Do you, do you think that you could, there's no way you could be a Judas? How do you know that? Well, one of the ways God has given us to know that is by each other together, life in the local church, closeness. And I pray that everybody in this room right now hearing the sound of my voice, if you haven't turned and trusted in Jesus, that you would, and that you would be called as a disciple of Jesus, then in community, and then that community would guard you against falling away. Thirdly, he calls us to be, well, first, let's reiterate, he calls us by grace, he calls us to be in community. And I think most importantly in this text, he calls us to be with Jesus. Listen to, uh, listen to what it says there in verse 14. It says, he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles. Listen to this. So that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. He doesn't call them because it was getting a little tiresome. <laughs> Their crowds were so large and they just needed to delegate this thing because Jesus was tired of the European soccer crowd. Just think that one little sentence there, how beautiful that is, is that Jesus calls us, he calls his disciples in this text and he calls us as well, first and foremost, to be with him. What does it mean to be a Christian? It doesn't mean primarily to clean yourself up or to have some principles by which you can lead a better life. All of those things come afterwards and may be very true as consequences of becoming a Christian. But at its core, what it means to be a Christian is to love Jesus. 
Like I even think, hear me now, I, I hadn't planned on going down this road, but hear me, hear me on this. And I hope I articulate it clearly because this, this thought just came to me. Is that at its core, even what it means to be a Christian is not like first and foremost to, to have your destiny like secured by Jesus' work on the cross. Like, like I think that sometimes we sort of grow up in a church culture where we're maybe little kids that have kind of heard that, you're, Johnny, you're bad and you need your sins forgiven. And so, you know, what are you going to do, Johnny? Trust in Jesus or go to hell? <laughs> I mean, well, you know, well, if Johnny's, you know, most little Johnnies and Susies are going to say, well, gosh, um, burn for eternity or, like, confess Jesus. Oh, okay, I'll confess Jesus. And I think there's a way of kind of, like, buying into Christianity where we're kind of going after just the benefits of what Jesus has done on the cross rather than Jesus himself. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like, I'm, well, I'm just trying to avoid this really terrible consequence that people in my life have said there is. And so, so yeah, of course, I mean, what, I, I, want, I want this thing. I, like, I want heaven and I want eternity and I want to see Grandma Lois and, you know, I, I want that. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't want that. But see, there's a way of actually sort of agreeing and tricking yourself into thinking that you're actually a Christian, and it never really, like, like it, it never really sinks down into your heart and becomes like where you fall in love with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? It's not like God just wanted some sort of little transaction to keep a ledger of all the people that confess their sins and believe in Jesus, and that's sort of all there is to it. And now, you little boys and girls go to heaven because you said the right prayer, and you little boys and girls were a little bit doubtful there, and you didn't have the thing. And so all these people over here that had the right little thing to say, you get to go. Friends, friends, do you see how that, 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 like that misses it? That at its core, God rescues a people so that they might glorify him and enjoy him and love him forever. And I think that the heart of the scriptures and the heart of the gospel is not that, that we would just sort of write out wrongs in our ledger as beautiful and as important as the forgiveness of sins is, but that we would be consumed with loving God and glorifying him with our lives. Do you see that? Do you see that? Like Jesus calls people to be with him, to love him, to captivate their lives and let them be consumed with his glory and his grace and his personhood and how beautiful and how irresistible he is. And, and friends, I confess, like I confess to you right now that I don't always like, have that type of relationship with Jesus. I have a, a, a sort of task-oriented often relationship with Jesus and I have a, a ledger-oriented relationship with Jesus where I'm, okay, I know I'm a Christian, I've done many things, and, uh, but, but at its core, Jesus wants me and you to, to just fall in love with him and be with him and to enjoy him. How do we do that? We do that by his word. We do that by being around other Christians. We, we do that by just letting ourselves bake, not in the poison of this culture, but in the goodness of of his grace as he gives it to us through his word and through his community. Do you, do you love Jesus? I'm not asking you if you've said the prayer. I'm not, I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church, if you're signed up for children's ministry, if you did that thing. I'm not, I'm not asking you if you're reading the Bible to your kids and praying with your wife. 
do you, do you love Jesus? Like, do you love him? And, and be encouraged if you, if, if you feel like, oh, like, I don't know, but I want to. Be encouraged because, friends, that's often the way I feel. He calls us to love him. And finally, after he calls us to be with him, he, he then sends us. So to be a disciple, fourthly, means to be sent by Jesus. He gives these early disciples the authority to cast out demons and to preach. Now, I don't think that this means that it's normative for all of his disciples to cast out demons and to heal people, although I still think God does that, and I still think God heals people. Clearly, I still think that. But I think that what's happening here is we find ourselves in a time in the redemptive storyline of the gospel where just like Jesus is authenticating his power over sin and sickness and evil spirits, and he is healing and casting out demons, he then is giving these 12 men a particular sort of authority to cast out demons, to authenticate, to validate their role in the early church. And he tells them now to go preach and cast out demons. And I think now we as Christians today are also called to be a display of the healing power of Jesus. For us, it may not work itself out in powerful sermons like Peter at the day of Pentecost or casting out demons, but I think it may work itself out more just, and I heard this phrase a few weeks ago, ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. What does it mean to be sent by Jesus as a person who lives in Columbus, Georgia? Maybe it's just as simple as, as just being intentional about speaking to somebody in your world about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Maybe it's as simple as inviting somebody to church where you know the gospel is going to be preached, where they'll have an opportunity to hear about what Jesus did so that they can be confronted with the news so that maybe in God's kindness he would cause them to turn away from their sin and self-sufficiency and turn in trust in Jesus. Maybe it's just as simple as developing patterns in your life like going to the same restaurant and going to the same coffee place or wherever. What do they call those places? Starbucks or something like that, going to the same place at the same time and befriending the little person who makes your coffee. Maybe it's, maybe it's just developing patterns in your life where you develop these sort of regular rhythm relationships where, it's, it's where you're, you're there to be a sort of mission, missionary for Jesus. Maybe it's just sort of signing up to help in some capacity or whatever it is, but it means that we're doing something with this grace that we've been given. It means that we're, we're letting this love, as Second Corinthians says, compel us, like push us out, push us out to love people, to sit by people in this sanctuary that maybe aren't like us or, or that we don't know. It, it kind of pushes us outside of ourselves to, to get our, our heads on a swivel so that we can, we can notice the need around us. And even, even in our sort of, incomplete, mixed-up state where we feel like there's so many things about us that aren't quite where they need to be. E- even then, like, even then, Jesus puts us on a mission. And one of the ways that he gets us away and outside of, and he, the, one of the ways that he heals us and makes us more complete in him is by getting us to spend less time focusing on how jacked up we are and actually kind of be just sort of sent. Do you see that? 
Like one of the ways that Jesus sanctifies us and one of the ways that Jesus grows us and one of the ways that Jesus encourages us and one of the ways that Jesus lifts us out of depression or whatever way we, we, we may be dealing with is to sort of get us to look up, to, to, to put our chin above the fog of our own little life and to just sort of be on regular mission. And, and when we do that, all of a sudden, we just start to be used by God and encouraged and, and God sends us his Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality in our community. And he spreads the fragrance of himself everywhere throughout our lives and our city. And it is a beautiful thing. Friends, um, are you a disciple of Jesus? I think that's the question. Do you love Jesus? If you not sure about the answer to that question. Do you want to love Jesus? Oh, be encouraged. Like, the good news of the gospel is that want to, you can't bring that yourself. Like, you cannot generate that on your own. So if there's even a want, there's even a want to in you, I think that's evidence that God is giving that to you to draw that out of you so that you could be called to be with him and then be on mission for Jesus. Here's what you need to do right now is, right now, again, afresh, turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus. And just in your own words, not something that I give you, but just say, Jesus, I want to love you. I want to love you more. I want to be refreshed and captivated by how beautiful you are. Jesus, I want to love you. Even now, in just a few moments, as we're praying, as we're singing, just pray that prayer on your own. Are you a disciple of Jesus already in it just seems like life has kind of gotten curved in on yourself and you've kind of lost perspective of community and mission and who you're all about. And again, there's grace. Just hit the control, alt, delete button again. That's just repentance afresh. It's said, Jesus, stir my affections again for you and your people and your mission and get my head on a swivel for your glory and grace. Do that even now. Do that even now. There's nothing between you and the God of all grace except for our own hard-heartedness. Do that even now, friends. Don't wait till you have a perfect mood or a perfect prayer or a perfect feeling. Do it even now. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, I'm just so thankful that you don't leave it up to us as to whether or not we will follow you, but you and your kindness, because of your compassionate grace, because as Paul says in Ephesians 2, because you are rich in mercy, you, you call us. And Lord, you are calling every person in this room now to turn and trust in you. You call, you call the whole world. The question is whether or not we will, we will turn and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would give faith and you would give repentance. You'd give hearts to believe and ears to hear, eyes to see Jesus for those who walked into this room dead 
Lord, would you give those gifts because you're kind and compassionate. Lord, would that person turn and trust in Jesus. Father, for people that have already done that, that are already Christians, Lord, would you you crush our pride and create in us confidence and Lord, would you let my brothers and sisters in here like me just fall deeper in love with Jesus and blow out the cobwebs in the corners of our heart and the insecurity and the self-absorption that just racks us and would you lift our heads again and would you refresh our hearts so that we might love you more and and inevitably when you do that, it pushes us out of ourselves to love other people. So Lord, would you do those things? Would we now respond to you in worship and prayer in looking to Jesus? And I pray these things in, in his great and glorious name. Amen.